0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City.
1: And this is Prashant Parmas Warren from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good, how are you doing? Doing well. Um,
0: And it's not just the two of us today. We actually have a third special guest with us. Um, Joining us all the way from Australia is uh, Irve Lamaya, Director of the Asian Power and Diplomacy Program at the Lowy Institute. Irve, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. Uh, So, uh, you know, I always like to have our guests um, introduce themselves since they usually do a much better job of uh, stating what they're actually interested in than I can do on their behalf. So uh, do you mind telling us a bit about uh, what you uh, work on at the Lowy Institute?
2: Sure. So I uh, head a program um, that is responsible for a comprehensive assessment of the distribution of power. Uh, in Asia. And we look at everything from military capability to defense diplomacy, cultural influence and economic relationships. Uh, but my background is uh, mainly on Southeast Asia, I focused uh, on political economy and security. Uh, before coming to the Low Institute, I was at the double the bless, which is another think tank in London. Um, I also grew up in Myanmar, so I have a special uh, sort of focus and interest in uh, the politics and history of uh, the Mekong region in particular.
0: Terrific. Well, you're, you're right at home uh, on this podcast uh, with me and Prashant. Um, and so actually, uh, so some of our listeners might remember, uh, especially if you've been listening to this podcast for more than a year, about a year ago, Prashant and I did an episode um, looking at the product that Irvay's uh, team at the Lowe Institute put out. Of course, we didn't have Irvay on the podcast with us uh, back then, but this was the uh, Asia Power Index. Uh, which uh, Hervé briefly um, hinted at with his description of what he does at Lowy. And um, the latest edition is out, the 2019 edition, and um, what the index does, I'll just briefly introduce it, Hervé, but then you can take us in a little bit deeper, is um, basically rank orders uh, 25 countries in the Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific region uh, across a range of indicators, uh, basically giving a quantitative ranking of their um total power. Uh, obviously, that's an important part of the currency of international relations, and certainly on a geopolitical podcast, we're very interested in how uh, such a ranking or methodology works. Um, so, Arvind, do you want to just tell us a bit, you know, before we dig into the specific rankings and some of the interesting takeaways from this year's ranking, um, tell us a bit about the methodology behind this ranking and, and how you really you know, came up with it, um, and and you know how I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, how do you have the confidence to give these 25 countries the rankings that you do? It just seems like a daunting task. Um, um, but you know, I think uh, I think you do it well here.
2: Well, thanks very much. Um, I, I think uh, Professor Yuan Kong at Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy uh, put it most diplomatically. He said, um, you guys have a lot of gumption um, in terms of uh, trying to assess uh, power. We, we always talk about the balance of power in very abstract terms. Um, yet, uh, there's, a, there's a lack or there's a deficit of um, uh, more uh, data-based uh, approaches at, at trying to measure uh, shifts in the, in the distribution of power over time. We felt that that was a, a challenge that we wanted to take um, and as much as possible we'll try to bring uh, some data points to the equation. Um, so we undertake a very comprehensive assessment of power. It's not just uh, hard power, but it's also soft power. Um, And we have about 126 indicators in the the index, uh, 30,000 data points. And the idea is that we're trying to build an analytical tool that will engage users at all levels of the index. So most indices are built as sort of black boxes that spit out a magic number. Um, We come up with a final ranking, but we also invite people to question um, our assumptions and and the component parts of the index. Uh, We want people to engage with individual indicators. Uh, We even have a weightings calculator that allows us, uh, uh, or anyone really, to to reshuffle uh, the weightings, uh, the relative importance of different measures of power Uh, which will recalibrate the rankings. Um, So this is uh, basically trying to clarify the terms of the debate here, um, as opposed to coming up with a um, empirically conclusive answer. Um, But uh, essentially the the big thing that we're trying to establish is, is that power is more than what countries have. It's also what countries decide to do with what they have. Um, So it's nice to have a large economy, but you need to be investing in uh, strategically pivotal countries. It's good to have a a large military, uh, but you need to be investing in defense diplomacy. Um, And that really revolves around policy, around choices and initiative, um, not just the fact that um, power uh, is uh, your resources or the sum of your resources. Um, And we try to reflect the fact that power in the 21st century really hinges on networks and interdependence and asymmetries and relationships. Um, So we've tried to to establish basically a a digital uh, platform uh, that's available for free, power.lowinstitute.org, where you can see the relative strengths and and weaknesses of every country. Um, And and what we uh, have established for a second year is, is that the US remains the predominant player Um, In Asia, it is actually still quite significant that the most powerful uh, uh, country in Asia is not actually an Asian country. It's the U.S. Uh, Nevertheless, in 2019, uh, we think that the U.S. has underachieved and that the power differential between the U.S. and China has narrowed. Um, And we also think that the Indo-Pacific is made up of Uh, many other actors. So there are many actors that create and sustain the balance of power, uh, which is why we felt the need to include uh, up to 25 countries. So we go as far west as Pakistan, as far north as Russia, and as far into the South Pacific
1: as Australia and
2: New Zealand.
0: Terrific. Prashant, I'll let you uh, ask a question here.
1: No, I, I think it. First of all, I wanted to say, I mean, and this is a very useful tool because I think, as you said, Irve, I mean, we have conversations about power and debates and discussions about it uh, all the time. But it really is useful to have a a digital and interactive platform in front of us that can help frame the debate so that even if we disagree on certain aspects, we at least have a common point of reference and a very, very comprehensive one too. Um, looking at not just the resources these countries have, as you said, but also uh, the influence that they can project. Uh, I think one of the things that was, I mean, I, I was i was waiting to sort of get my hands on this because it's the first year where, since it's the second year of production, where we could actually see, you know, the extent of continuity and change with respect to these rankings and, and how far these countries have come. One of the things that struck uh, me was that when you looked at the countries that were either improving or worsening in terms of their rankings, the the improved scores i think you had china was was plus 1.4 uh, north korea plus 1.3 and then the downward trajectory was also quite a a small increase relatively speaking i mean what does that say about the ranking system i think one aspect of this is that it's a very comprehensive index so not surprising that you don't see dramatic changes from year to year but uh, what does that say in terms of the, the, the amount of improvement and, and the downward trends, the fact that these are very small margins?
2: Yeah, so I think what, what that tells us is that we wouldn't expect uh, Cambodia to suddenly become a major power overnight. Um, and, and and that sort of makes sense. We're talking about tectonic shifts, uh, almost generational uh, in scope um, in, in the relative power of different players in our region. So we're gonna have to repeat this exercise uh, over many years um, before we start seeing uh, real changes, I mean, uh, the only real substantive change in the rankings uh, this year was in terms of North Korea having mm-hmm. overtaken the Philippines, uh, now now the 16th most powerful country uh, in our region, and that sort of reflects both um, its its signature strengths as a nuclear power, uh, the gumption that it has in terms of. Uh, uh, negotiating directly with the United States, uh, but also real weaknesses still in terms of having a smaller economy uh, than Laos, even though a country like Laos has a, has a quarter of the population of North Korea. So this, this is an asymmetric power. Um, but I think what, what it shows us generally is is the trends seem to be moving in the direction of uh, emerging economies, which makes sense. Asia's economic transformation is really changing uh, the balance of power globally and changing the way the region works strategically and politically. Um, And what it also confirms is that the US is not in absolute decline by any sense. Uh, It it remains the the predominant military player. It has unprecedented levels of defense clout in our region. It also brings soft power to the region in terms of uh, information flows and cultural influence. but that it may, uh, you know, it, it, it is facing up to relative decline with the rise of all these other players. Um, and that includes China, um, but it also includes a number of interesting uh, major powers like India, uh, a, a established powers like Japan, who um, in the void I would say of, 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 or in the absence of broad-based political, US political leadership uh, in a multilateral sense, um, have really taken the initiative um, uh, to uh, f- shore up support for a rules-based multilateral order. So what we're seeing is that middle powers are taking, um, are having to work harder than they ever have before uh, to maintain their comparative advantage. And a, p- a primary example of that is uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan and the way that he was able to resuscitate the Trans-Pacific Partnership minus mm-hmm. the United States. So middle powers are taking the initiative here. And I think it's too simplistic to reduce uh geopolitics in Asia as a two-player game between the US and China. There's a lot more happening here. Um, Even ASEAN countries, um, as much as we criticize ASEAN for being uh, a not particularly adept uh, tool of diplomacy in an age of great power competition, um, in fact, eight out of 10 ASEAN countries registered uh, 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 upward trends in their score, uh, which is interesting, right? I mean, we we sort of think that uh, as we enter into a an age of a turbulent age of great power relations that um, everyone else becomes less important. But I actually think that middle powers become more important in the overall balance of power um, as as we enter into a, a, a period where uh, we're moving from consensual world order to one defined again by competition. There are some politics So networks still matter. Uh, and I think that actually counterintuitively, middle powers are actually becoming more important, not less important to the balance of power
0: yeah i mean that's that's you know really really struck out to me the uh improvement among so many of the southeast asian countries but also i mean just looking at you know this also struck me last year just the power um levels that many american allies and partners bring to the table right i mean that's uh, when you think about a networked indo-pacific uh those advantages that the united states actually has in the region which i know that's part of the measure uh the defense networks that a country has um, is sort of taken into account in the measure of US power inherently. Uh, but that really, I think, comes through in the index. Um, so a quick question that I had on, I guess this is kind of a methods question. Um, so with Russia, is, is Russia's power score based on, um, at least when it comes to a hard power and relationships, is that based comprehensively on everything Russia does on the global stage, or what it does exclusively in Asia?
2: So this is a, a, an index that's primarily focused on the relationships that countries uh, have within Asia and their okay. ability to project their interests um, within the Indo-Pacific region. So it gives us great pleasure in Australia to describe Russia as a middle power and not as a major power. <laughs> um, and uh, I think it's it's a reflection of the fact that uh, whilst Russia is a Eurasian power and it does have significant military assets um, in our region, you know its specific fleet is based in Vladivostok, um, Predominantly, it is still a, a sort of European player. Um, it's much more active uh, in, in Eastern Europe and even in the Middle East than it is um, in Asia. It has its own pivot to Asia. Um, it's become very important to China, particularly uh, as China's energy security uh, trends downwards. Um, it's having to rely much more on Russia to diversify its uh, its access to secure energy. Um, but other than that, I think Russia is basically an underachiever in our region and, and um, uh doesn't uh seem to allocate as many resources or, or policy priority uh to, to to asia and i think our ranking of russia in fifth place behind india is a reflection uh of that
0: right right so that was the hunch that i actually had that russia's showing um was a function of the fact that this was primarily focused on the uh asian uh, asian power angle uh, of a country like russia i was wondering so in the in the future actually has there been any thought of um adding, I guess, further extra-regional powers. I'm thinking here of, you know, France and the UK in particular. Um, I mean, you know, Irve, we just uh, saw you at the Shangri-La Dialogue, where this was obviously a big topic of contention. Because I think that would actually be an interesting uh, addition to the index to actually think about how those countries, um, and and possibly the European Union, if that can be done for a a supranational organization like that, um, how they um, express themselves uh, in the Indo-Pacific in terms of um, power.
2: So I I had um, the pleasure of... um of uh, briefing the German defense minister on uh, the Asia power index back in January. Um, And they were very interested in in, in exactly that, in seeing how other uh, extra regional powers could contribute uh, one way or the other to the balance of power in Asia. Um, and that's something that we would hope to work towards in the future. So we're uh, at the moment, the focus is very much on the Indo-Pacific. And that's that's pre- predominantly a sort of a maritime construct. Um, but what we want to do more of is is focus on Central Asia. So we, we go as far as Mongolia, but we could do things like Kazakhstan, countries like Kazakhstan and, and, and the other stands. Uh, and even then, move into uh, the direction of the European Union, and 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 you know the French as well have told me under no uncertain terms uh, that they are a major Indo-Pacific player, that they are a nuclear power, uh, that they hold a Security Council seat, and therefore they deserve as well uh, uh, to be uh, to be considered under under this index. I, I think I'd like to do that. That presents some methodological questions as well, because we've got to differentiate between uh, France or the EU's power within their regions versus what they are actually doing uh, in the indo-pacific but um as 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 this um uh, methodology matures as the index uh, as we as we repeat this exercise over time um, the idea is to add uh, a number of other players uh, and see how they're contributing um, to to the balance of power. I mean, w- one one thing that I wanted to, to add as well is is that um, uh, some people have said, look, you, you're offering a very somewhat fatalist uh, interpretation of uh, the way that the balance of power inevitably is shifting towards the largest players like China, um, and uh, that's uh, true to a certain extent. Um, I mean, we. The, Economic uh, balance of power does determine a lot uh, of of the final rankings. Um- but uh at the same time uh, nothing is predetermined and and uh I, because we're making this distinction between uh power being more than the sum of your economic resources being the sum of your policy initiatives and your networks um uh i actually think this is a much more fluid uh, arrangement than, than conventionally thought and uh w- what we're sort of suggesting is that the us will find it increasingly difficult to compete with china unilaterally so there's a kind of leveling effect in 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 the uh, respective powers that they have um as as individual countries uh but the the, the future is networked it, it has to be um and um the comparative advantage that the us still holds over china uh, will lie in taking a networked uh, approach and under those circumstances middle powers in asia uh, but also, as far as Europe, become become much more crucial to the overall balance of power. And I think one of the key challenges for China is 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 actually establishing broad-based influence. Um, there's no doubt that China has this incredible economic soft power. Although there are increasing um, questions as to the sustainability of uh current levels of lending and whether that kind of economic soft power is translating to influence in other domains we've seen increased levels of opposition uh towards uh, china's belt and road initiative for example in southeast asia over the course of the last 12 months we've had countries like malaysia and myanmar uh, ne- renegotiate their big flagship bri projects in favor of the borrower um, and at the same time, if you're then looking at the underlying demographics, um, you have the rise of India, right? By, by mid-century, India will be about 20% larger than China demographically. Um, China is set to lose 158 million people from its working age population uh, in less than 30 years. That's going to presage all, all forms, all manner of of um social and 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 economic challenges so so there is nothing actually predetermined and and as china chips away or continues to chip away at the relativities of the u.s's power um i actually think that india will will start doing the same for china's power um and and there is just going to be a a, a just a much more general leveling effect between um the 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 top players and everyone else
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i think one of the things that did strike me about uh the index uh findings again this year was the fact that i mean we as you said Irve. i mean this is a, a sort of a region with various players uh beyond just the united states and china that being said though i mean the the data it is quite striking not surprising but if you look at it visually and and you look at the the metrics uh how the united states and china how far ahead they are relative to even uh india and japan right um, right. And the fact that you have these uh, increases that, as we discussed earlier, are happening so incrementally and slowly, it, it, didn't, it didn't seem like we were you know going to be headed for a multipolar world uh, in, the, in the true sense of the word, in terms of comprehensive notions of more uh, anytime soon, even though these countries will obviously uh, sort of form their own networks in response to what uh, the United States and, and, and China do. I also do think, you know, the point about networking uh, is reinforced in the index by the fact that, I mean, Taiwan, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, in in fact, penalized by the index in terms of going down because, um, partly because at least, uh, you know, coercive attempts by China and the fact that it's lost some of its diplomatic allies. So the fact that the the networking power um, of these countries uh, is demonstrated uh, in the index, relatively speaking, right. Whereas I think China, in terms of defense networks, which was very interesting, still ranks quite low, but it uh, went up, I think, three spots um, in terms of its networks, and and that was very interesting for me because it is interesting with uh, the Belt and Road Initiative that the chinese are not only using this as as an economic initiative but also a way to build up their geopolitical influence more generally
2: yeah i, th- I think that's that's a, a good observation Um, uh, we have to take that in in perspective. I mean, uh, yes, uh, China did climb the ranks in terms of uh, our assessment of its defense diplomacy. um, And that is the area where it made the most progress over the last 12 months. Um, But it is still the Achilles heel of China's influence in our region. The fact that um, it's only ranked ninth, which is well below where it should stand, given that it comes out second for the overall ranking. Um, And and what we do there is is essentially we're looking at um, uh, conventional alliances so that the, you know, you know, the U.S.-centered uh, alliance network—the uh, hub and spoke, where the U.S. is the hub and the spokes are, uh, you know, Australia and, and South Korea and Japan. Um, but we're also looking at non-allied defense partnerships, and, and we think that that's actually the, the main uh, medium of defense diplomacy in our region, given that a lot of countries are are formally non-aligned, but they are doing a lot behind the scenes. So how do you measure the depth of emerging defense relationships? Well, we look at the number of joint training exercises that countries undertake and with whom um so we're looking at the diversity but also the depth of their relationships um we're looking at the uh, defense diplomacy dialogues that take place in the region and 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 between which countries um we're looking at arms transfers as well which is often a, a sort of a proxy uh, indicator of 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 hardening strategic uh, partnerships um and uh, what we see is that china is sort of normalizing a little bit um so it 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 has come the ra- the ranks the ranks um but it hasn't um, uh, done so with any particular country in mind. It's just generally undertaking a few more joint training exercises than it was uh, two years ago, um, uh, the PLA celebrated a big anniversary this year as well. So that would have actually counted towards the joint training exercises uh, okay. with other countries. So in some sense, it's it's trying to lift the profile and trying to normalize the, the, the relationships that the PLA has with the rest of the region. But really fundamentally, um, most of the defense diplomacy that takes place in our region is still geared towards hedging against the rise of China as a military actor and I would actually even say there's an inverse relationship between uh, China's military strength and the fact that it's growing uh, in its military capability and the amount of uh, effort that goes into uh, defense diplomacy by everyone else uh, to try to hedge against uh, China's rise and and this is you know it points to a sort of trust deficit um, in the long-term ambitions of, of Beijing um, and we'll have to we'll have to see I mean perhaps China will continue to make uh, similar strides in its defense diplomacy. Uh, but for the moment, I would say you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly worthy of, 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 of a mention, um, but, but the overall picture is still one in which uh, China looks very isolated in terms of its defense diplomacy. Mm-hmm.
0: So am I right in saying that the second largest growth year-on-year in power in the Lowy Power Index this year is North Korea after China?
2: That's correct, yes. That's, that's um, pretty interesting. Yes. It is, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's absolutely fascinating because North Korea actually jumped uh, 1.3 points, which is almost uh, the same scale as what China's uh, upward trend was. Um, so I have to say there's there's a score that's based out of 100 points, and then there's a ranking based on, on the score. So North Korea uh, jumped in ranking, uh, and it also jumped uh, 1.3 points in its overall score. Um, and that really has everything to do with uh, the kind of clever diplomacy of Kim jong Um, over the last 12 months um, the fact that i think uh, north korea has played a weak hand very well uh, over over uh, the course of 2018 and 2019 by engaging in this summit diplomacy uh, in singapore and in vietnam ostensibly on equal terms with the president of the united states Um, Kim Jong-un has managed to elevate the standing of North Korea and even partially normalize uh, uh, North Korea's diplomatic relations with the rest of the region. Now, that's still very far from normalizing uh, or relaxing the the sanctions regime against North Korea. That's really what North Korea wants here, after all, is to sort of integrate into the global economy. Um, But we can talk about a relaxation in the enforcement of those sanctions. Um, and that's forced us to kind of re uh, have another fresh look at um, our projections for North Korea's uh, uh, economic uh, progress in the next ten years. Uh, and we've actually uh, our new forecast is is painting a slightly rosier picture for North Korea, starting from a very low base. Um, but therefore it's it's made the most uh, uh, kind of strides in terms of its diplomatic influence, where it's jumped five rankings. Um, And in terms of its future resources. But this is an incomplete uh, gamble. Um, There's a lot that could still go wrong here. Um, And uh, I'd say that, uh, uh, you know, North Korea has made huge strides, but it's coming from a low base.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I'll be I'll be really curious to see uh, where North Korea uh, ends up ends up next year. Um, The
2: the other thing to mention, sorry, about North Korea is that at the same time that it's made these strides in terms of its influence uh, metrics, um, it's also continued to do very well in military capability. It's jumped one ranking there. Um, And um, it's, uh, you know, there are estimates that it's produced as much uh, nuclear fissile material uh, to build, I think, uh, something like a dozen new nuclear bombs uh, since the summit diplomacy started with uh, Donald Trump. So uh, the point is, its hard power is as unabated as ever.
0: That's right. That's right. Um, so we are we are running a little short on time, Mervé, but I wanted to ask you, um, uh, I know there's so much more depth uh, to the Power Index than we can really capture in our uh, brief format here, um, but is there anything you want to punch up for our listeners before we unfortunately have to uh, end today's episode?
2: Um, just on, I think Taiwan offers a very curious uh, example of uh, a, a sort of a political outsider that's still central to the balance of power in our region. Um, so Taiwan is the only country that registered a, uh, or the only territory rather that registered a, a significant downward shift um, in our assessment of its power. Um, that's because it's lost more diplomatic allies over the last 12 months. Uh, it's lost two countries that previously recognized it as the main China. but it is up on technology and it's up on defense diplomacy. so even in this in, you know in our assessment there are silver linings here. and I think we have to remember uh, Taiwan is still a really important check. Uh, to China's ambitions uh, to become a full-fledged maritime power. So long as Taiwan continues to exist as an autonomous territory, um, that is still a very big um, uh, obstacle uh, for China's rise.
0: Terrific. Prashant, any uh, final impressions?
1: No. um, I I think this was great. Um, Good addition. And I'm looking forward to seeing uh, how this plays out next year with the addition of the indicators. I would just flag one additional interesting anecdote that, that I saw reflected, which is, um, the the index and the findings, you know, Irving and, and his team noted that one of the sources of American influence uh, with respect to its capabilities is the fact that um, even though the United States remains an outside actor with respect to the Asia Pacific, the place that uh, a lot of folks are still getting their news uh, about Asia is actually from U.S. sources, in addition to, of course, you know, the the Diplomat magazine and <laughs> other sources that we're familiar with. Um, and I thought that was really interesting, too, because um, the media environment um, plays an important role in shaping some of these indicators as well, including the sort of cultural indicators and social indicators.
0: Right, right. No, so, I mean, I think I think that's the real strength um, of the Lowy e Index is that... Um... It's uh, you know there's so much more to power than uh, military capabilities, which is, I think, really worth pointing out. I mean, we can talk we can talk you know all we want about hardware, and especially you know something like nuclear weapons. I think it's fascinating how little that does for some countries, like uh, you know Pakistan, especially uh, finds itself kind of solidly in the middle order, despite being a nuclear power. Um, And of course, I think North Korea you know tends to punch above its weight precisely for that reason. So. Yeah, I mean, Hervé, uh, commendations to you and uh, your team for uh, for your work here. And, uh, you know, I think Prashant hinted at this, but I think the real value of this index, I think, will be um, over the years as we uh, observe countries uh, move up and down and, and the reasons for those. So, uh, yeah, uh, thanks a lot for joining us today to uh, talk through uh, your findings.
2: Thanks so much, Ankit and, and Prashant. Um, I really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to talk a bit more beyond beyond just the headlines.
0: Yeah, and I'll just uh, plug the URL again. So it's Uh I really recommend our listeners go poke around the website because uh, like Irve said, you can actually change... Things around, look at all the categories, um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of depth. I, I think the printed version that I have is well over 150 pages, <laughs> just going through uh, all the various um, permutations of uh, of power rankings in the index. Um, for, for
2: the data geeks out there, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, so unfortunately, we'll have to end it there. Uh, I know that we could talk a lot longer about this stuff. Um, But uh, for our listeners, thanks a lot for uh, tuning into the podcast. As always, if you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. Uh, We're now on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and a range of other podcast providers. I'm sure you can find one way or another to subscribe to the Asia Geopolitics podcast. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please do. That really helps get the word out about the show. Uh, So thanks. Uh, We will be back uh, in a couple weeks. I'm actually uh, taking a week off next week. So there won't be a podcast, but um, we will be back in late June to uh, talk about the latest developments in the Asia Pacific. So thanks a lot for listening.